Sounds and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamu alaikum, this is Umar, and thanks for joining us for the third episode of our Diaspora Voices sub-series, this time on the Tatar Muslims in Brooklyn, New York. I speak to Alyssa Ratkovich, a third-generation Tatar and vice president for the board of the historic Brooklyn Mosque, and Tariq Hussain, writer, journalist, and broadcaster specializing in Muslim heritage of the West. He has written for several publications, including the BBC, and was most recently responsible for the updated Lonely Planet Guide for the Arabian Peninsula. So my name is Alyssa Redkevich. Um, I'm in my life outside of this. <laughs> I run an after-school program in Manhattan. Uh, I'm a mom of two boys, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And I'm on the board for the Brooklyn Muslim Mosque. Uh, I'm a fourth-generation um, member of the mosque. My, um, or rather my children are the fourth-generation uh, members of the mosque. My grandfather was uh, Imam and that's my dad's dad and my mom's dad um, <clears throat> also worshiped there and he uh, taught Sunday uh, classes, religious classes there on the weekends. Uh, so my family has been very tied to this place for, for several generations. Now I'm also the caretaker of the building. So uh, my family lives very nearby and we're able to uh, be the ones who are, are there opening the building maintaining it and and keeping an eye on things uh and dark yes so i i think you've given me quite a introduction so i won't go into too much depth but the main reason i'm on this show is because um as well as um coming up on the muslim tatar community in um in the baltic which i um later discovered was linked to the uh, muslim community that Alyssa and her certainly her grandparents were a big part of um, I ended up um, writing several articles on both communities and um, ended up doing a BBC World Service radio documentary that integrated this narrative within the broader um, his, um, broader historical context of the mosques of America. Um, and that went on to win an award and it was a fantastically successful piece. And of course, I also made um, some wonderful new friends like Alyssa over there mm-hmm. in and um, we've stayed in touch since. So that is actually a really good segue into, you know, why we're joined here um, and what we're about to discuss. So tell us more about, Alyssa, like, you know, if you want to tell us more about the history of the Brooklyn Mosque um, and how that mosque was established and the history of the Tatar community in New York. Sure. So um, my grandparents, along with Countless others in, in the turn of the century were immigrating to the U.S. Uh, from from all over Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, all for their their own reasons, um, primarily to uh, escape war and get a better life for themselves and their children. All those all those American dream stories we've been told. Uh, <laughs> so they came to New York, landed mainly in Brooklyn. Um, the mosque is in uh, the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, uh, which at that time was not the hipster central that it is now. Uh, it was <laughs> primarily um, Jewish immigrants, 
and uh, there was quite a lot of poverty. And, you know, that's, that's the place that my ancestors could afford. And that's where we congregated and every culture sort of congregated together. So there was a familiarity, you know, we speak the same language, you know, just like in any other city that there's becomes little boroughs of communities. So there became a little borough of uh, Tatar Muslims in Brooklyn. And whenever somebody would come over from the old country, they would say, okay, there, there's a place for you here. You know, we, we, we know the food, we know the language. Mm-hmm. You can find uh, other people here. Uh, mm-hmm. So the mosque was founded in 1907, um, but that wasn't, we weren't in the location that we're in now. That was mainly just incorporating the group of people, the band of people who um, wanted to establish this community. Um, and, and just one note is I think that this, this was not necessarily the first mosque, but it's the longest running mosque. Uh, stay, keep, the doors have been open longer. Um, I believe at the time there was a mosque on State Street for like, uh, it was a Syrian mosque in lower Manhattan. Um, and that's really the only one that I've heard of when they were being established. Like the, that was the only other one that they had known of, uh, they'd known about. Uh, now I'm pretty sure it's a Staples or something. <laughs> oh. um, but so correct me if I'm wrong, but this was the first mosque that was uh, registered, like the community registered the, uh, was it the Muslims Incorporated? That was the first uh, like organization registered as a Muslim organization in New York, right? I, it might have been this the State Street Mosque. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think one of the things that's difficult with all of this is that none of this history has ever really been properly explored. Mm -hmm. So even when I was working with um, Elisa on um, on this heritage and we were looking at the history of the mosque across the US, you know, um, a lot of it was beginning to surface into the popular domain really for the first time. And so I think... It's going to be continuously changing. But what we did establish, um, and as Alyssa has pointed out, it's certainly the um, you know longest running um, Muslim association that we're aware of in, in in the US. Isn't that right, Alyssa? Yes, and actually, we we very much have to to credit you, Tarek, for that uh, discovery because there's always been uh, an understanding like we're we're world, whereas an organization. But I think it wasn't until your work that we had really named that that we had really ever put effort into knowing this information and being able to rally around it um Mm. so i think that that's something that has definitely put a little bit of motivation in a lot of our community because we didn't know that we had any kind of title before Mm -hmm. before this work so speaking of motivation like Alyssa, what was your own motivation in uh, you know remaining involved with the mosque and like how has your um you know presence in the mosque as something that was um you know a, a religious space a place of worship for you in in your um like in your childhood how has that role and your dynamic with the space evolved um over the years and what's your role like in the board so um, I'm the vice president of the board now, and as I said before, the caretaker. Mm-hmm. And I got involved when I was, I think when I was getting my master's degree, and I was working part-time in, in a number of different places around the city. Um, and the thing, the thing that actually got me 
going in the, in the first place was we have all these really beautiful old paintings. Uh, some of them are Arabic uh, prayers and some of them are just uh, paintings of <clears throat> these really ornate mosques that I think that they were doing in like a Sunday school kind of the situation, you know, like there was like an art class element <laughs> to the classes. Um, but I, I remember happening upon these uh, paintings when I was like helping clean up and I had always seen them when we would go pray. Um, and they were just sort of getting, they were deteriorating. Um, some of them were dated as, as early as like 1927. And I thought it was really a shame that they were, they were falling into disrepair. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was studying art, history, well, art, art education, really. And I saw this as a place where I could, I could contribute something. So I, I asked the board if I could have some funds to get them framed and, and at the very least preserve them so they didn't get any more damage. Um, and I made a proposal and they accepted it. They were really excited that I was excited about something and, pre, you know, preserving the history. And so I did the work and I got them as many pieces as I could afford to get, uh, got them framed and hung up. It was really lovely. And I think that's when the board saw like, oh, she's interested. Reel her in. (laughs) 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 Join the board. Uh, So, and I did. That I feel is a very common theme in mosques, right? Like they just, (laughs) they see somebody who's young and interested in the community and taking charge. And they're like, yes, rope them in, rope her in. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, And yeah, so that, and I I started as recording secretary um, and just doing doing more and more things for the board um as as they came up and and here I am now yeah <laughs> and so Tariq, tell us more about your own experience and discovering and uh kind of tracking the story like what were your motivations in uh learning more about the Tatar community like was there something that you read or like you know you heard it from someone and you just was so in- you were intrigued like what was that journey like for you so my my journey um to to kind of end up in in Brooklyn and with Alyssa it really kind of centered around the fact that I've all, I had this deep desire to try and unearth and put on the map the Muslim heritage of the West. Um, I say West now because obviously working with Elisa and, and looking at what's going on in the US, I've now expanded my desire to do that beyond what initially began as Europe. So I used to spend a lot of time, and I still do spend a lot of time, trying to look into the history and heritage of um, the Muslim community's past um, and present, but mo- mostly in the past to try and make it more apparent and and also just put it where it belongs, you know, make it a part of the kind of mainstream narrative of, of Europe. Because often I think um, European and Western heritage is deemed, if it is, if it is going to have any kind of religious context, it's mm-hmm. often seen as Judeo-Christian and it's been quoted as such. And, and the reality is, you know, Islam mm-hmm. has been in Europe almost from the very off, as in it's nearly 14 centuries old. And when I first realised that, um, and it was on a, on, on, strangely, bizarrely enough, it was on my way to Saudi Arabia and I ended up stopping off in um, Cyprus um, just purely because the, the cheapest flight I could get happened to be on the now defunct um, Cypriot Air, which had to stop in Lanaka. And I had a few hours to to sort of waste, shall we say. And this was quite a while back, nearly 16, 17 years ago. And as I as I would often do, I'd look for interesting things to do during a stopover if I could get out and about. And lo and behold, I discovered that there was this fascinating mosque 
just a 20 minutes, half hour drive from Lanarka Airport. Um, and that, that mosque happened to be on, on some salt lakes, which, which was enough back then for me to, to sort of want to go and visit it. And I, and I turned up, visited what, what I now know to be, um, an Ottoman era mosque. And I thought, oh, this is rather nice and took some pictures. I, my wife was with me and my, and my first daughter had been born at the time. And we, we, we went and had a nosy around and, and I was actually a little bit, you know, freaked out by it because it, it also had a tomb inside the mosque. And back then that was a bit strange for me. And I didn't really know the story, but the old caretaker who, who owned it, who, um, oh, sorry, not owned it, who, who ran the place kind of put this pamphlet into my hand that I didn't take mm-hmm. much notice of until much later. And it was only then, um, quite some time later that I realized, um, the mosque was claiming to stand on the spot and the tomb was allegedly that of a um, aunt of the Prophet Muhammad himself. And um, so the mosque is known as, if off the top of my head, I'm trying to make sure I get the name right, Sultan um, Khala Sultan Teki Masjid or mosque. And, and, and the Khala word means, of course, maternal aunt. And... Um, whether or not the tomb is actually the tomb of the individual we're discussing, the reality that I later realized that the factual aspect of it was that there had indeed been Muslims arriving in Cyprus, you know, within the first generation of, of the uh, Muslim community, um, who had been sent over by, by the leaders of, of the first generation of Muslim community in Saudi Arabia. And it ended up in Cyprus, which of course is a part of Europe. And it dawned on me that there was this whole Muslim history and heritage of of Europe that I knew absolutely nothing about. And as somebody who is obviously European, albeit a a migrant, um, the the result of a migrant family, I realized this was my heritage. And so that's what really sparked off the desire to to sort of turn up in, in, in various parts of Europe, having done some research and, and, and start looking for the Muslim history of of places like um, the Baltic. And and the story in the Baltic was really one of the ones that got me very, very excited because it wasn't one that I saw coming at all. By this time, I'd I'd kind of studied, um, so obviously, the history of places like Spain and, and, and the Mediterranean. I'd looked at, you know, the Umayyad history there. I'd looked at the Arabized Vikings even. I mean, sorry, the Normans even down there. I knew about the Ottoman expansion, which was turning up, in, you know, which was giving me lots of material in places like the Balkans. But I had no idea about this this very unique narrative Um the sitting in, in in the Baltic, um, and when I came across it prior to a family trip, so I, I what I would often do is because back then you know I wasn't being paid to do any of this. This was just a passion that I I hoped would develop into something one day. What I would often do is I would often tag my own research desires onto a family holiday. That's that's really effective. <laughs> yeah, it often led to itineraries, and uh, you know I've got a long suffering wife who's very very accommodating, and. Um, you know, it would often lead lead to itineraries for our family um, holidays that that sort of went quite close to historic Muslim villages and um, old cemeteries and stuff like that. And, you know, so I had to always find a beach nearby or or something that was a bit more appealing to the rest of the family. And on this particular trip, 
we decided to hire a um, a camper van a motorhome from from the capital of of Lithuania Vilnius and and then bounce around the Baltic for for a good few weeks over the summer um and it's the kind of madcap holidays we as a family love to do and of course when i came across the possibility that there was a 600 plus year old muslim community potentially with um descendants still alive today you can imagine just how excited i got but it was the story that went with this the, the kind of for want of a better phrase the genesis story which many muslims are going to hate me using that term for for the beginnings of a muslim community but that 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 kind of founding narrative was absolutely fascinating really blew my mind and captured my imagination because it kind of flew in the face of a lot of the narratives that we're hearing today um about muslims not belonging here and how muslims are the only kind of um potentially the only kind of religious extremist because of course that that the beginning story of the um tartars in in muslim tartars in the baltic is all about being asked to come over to what was then a relatively tolerant pagan um mm-hmm. grand duchy which it was the grand duchy of lithuania which covered um modern day lithuania poland and belarus and and actually joining the side of of the pagan um duchy to fight off extremist christians um the teutonic knights who who were being very very intolerant and insisting everyone converted to their faith or was done away with and it was just a for me it felt like a very timely narrative to bring to the surface again and 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 discuss but you know what blew me away of course was to turn up with this camper van and find these historic villages more or less right. untouched in many ways you know even the layout of many of the villages are apparently and and like i say the, the research into this stuff is yet to be done fully are apparently more or less exactly the same um as it would have been when the original tartar encampments wow. were set up in these villages which was absolutely mind blowing you know and and then to find that some of them still had these beautifully almost um you know indigenously european looking mosques that i had never mm-hmm. seen anywhere else in the world you know in that they looked like they mm-hmm. were born from the very baltic landscape in which they stood and of course they had because their design had evolved over 600 years in this in this very kind of um remote and and almost isolated part of europe away from the rest of the traditional muslim community so they developed and evolved their own kind of cultural and uh, right. landscape so i do want to um, like that's a really interesting point i want to throw over to alissa as well because you know um alissa you were mentioning that you also took a trip to uh the so called old countries with the community in brooklyn so you know how because the space uh in on power street like the actual mosque has stood there since like 1927 right so how like how has the design of the mosque infor- been informed by uh what Tariq is describing like these you know indigenously european looking mosques uh it tremendously influenced um by by those looks and having seen both now yeah. you know i'd i'd grown up only knowing our mosque and having gone back and being and and really having that realization of like oh this is that this means that that's what 
you know, uh, was really, really enlightening. So everything down from, we've got like wood paneling, uh, on all of the walls, which is a really, um, a throwback to the, the wooden structures that they, that, um, the mosques are. Do you remember Alyssa, when when you first came, when I first showed you, I think some pictures of the interior of the mosque in the Baltic, and it was fully mm. wood cladding, and you were like, yeah. "Oh my god!" So that's yeah. why we Absolutely. have all this wood cladding inside. <laughs> Very much kind so. Of, you know, penny yeah. dropping and, and, you moment, know, wasn't it? Again, not having that frame of reference, never having seen the original. I'm just, I would go into being like, these wood panelings are so ugly and so old and like, God, it's dated. Um, and now, you know, now there's a much, much more mature appreciation of, of where they come from. But uh, at the time, yeah, without that context, it didn't really mean much. But having that context and seeing uh, the originals was really enlightening because there were so many details that I wouldn't have even anticipated. Uh, you know, wood paneling is certainly one of them. The, the, mm. The crescent moon on the roof, obviously, is another. Um, but the building was not, you know, it's not wasn't a purpose built mosque. It was a, a church initially, and mm. you know, just a very standard square building uh, that they retrofitted to to serve our purposes. And once we had seen, once I had seen the mosques in Belarus and Lithuania and Poland. There were certain things that so one really random and and thing that that amused me was like they have these little wooden donation boxes next to the door that is if it wasn't taken from there it somebody had the same blueprints and made the exact same one for our mosque and it was just such a funny little detail that it was such a peculiar shape and such a peculiar design that it had to be exactly the same. You mean the one inside inside the Brooklyn mosque? Yeah. It was. It was. And so how long has has that box been there? Probably a hundred and twenty years. <laughs> wow. And and the and the mimbar that the that the imam stands on to give his his um a sermon on Fridays. You know, when you when you look at the one in the Brooklyn Mosque and then compare it to the ones in the mosques in in the in in the Baltic, you suddenly realize where the inspiration mm-hmm. came from. Yeah, and there was a lot. There was a lot of uh, realization on my part understanding what was cultural and what was strictly religious. I think that was something that has been an ongoing conversation that I I really enjoy is seeing what is, what is true of everybody, what is true of Tatar and what is true of Brooklyn. Um, And kind of seeing though, you know, those Venn diagrams overlap has been been really interesting. So I do want to kind of, um, you know, go deeper into what you're saying is the evolution of the mosque, right? Like it was not purpose built as a mosque. It was, it was overtaken. um, It was bought out as a, as a church. So how has that space, um, you know, evolved like over the, over the years that, and the several generations, I should say that, you know, it's been functioning as a mosque. What kind of roles did the mosque function for the community? Like other than a place of worship? It was, from my understanding, uh, a touchstone for people. Like I was saying, when when folks were coming to America, this was a place where people people could congregate. And um, if you were going to meet somebody, you know, a family friend or something like that who had come from your village, you could meet them here. Um, and that's where some people would would get like connected to jobs or housing. And and it served as a, a cultural touchstone, I think, for a lot of people. And 
that was a big part of the community at the time. So as that role was becoming less necessary in New York, um, you know, as the influx of immigrants slowed down, um, it didn't necessarily need to be that place anymore. It wasn't the cultural center of everybody's lives because so many people, I would say through the 50s, um, this was like the main social gathering place for for those families. I know, I know both my parents, pretty much all of their friends, they knew from the mosque. They were that's that's the group of friends they were with. They didn't really hang out with kids from their schools so much. Um, this was really the place to be. And I think alongside, uh, you know, churches are seeing the same thing. That role is, you know, decreased in people's lives. So now we're really getting into an age in in now where it's showing like the cultural history and preserving the history. And and it's become a place where people can connect to their roots. Maybe they're not practicing Muslims anymore. Maybe um, their grandparents came through, you know, they they immigrated through Ellis Island and moved on through. Um, We've had a lot of people reaching out and saying like, hey, my, I know my grandfather was lived in Brooklyn for a time. And he was Tatar. And if that's mm. the case, there's a very good chance he came through our doors at some point. Um, and How do you guys maintain that? Because, you know, I imagine now that the community has begun over the generations, started to move out from Brooklyn. Oh, very much, yeah. Um, you know, how has that connection, other than people's own desire um, to maintain some sort of a relationship with this space, but, you know, from the perspective of, let's say, the board or... Um, you know, the still practicing community that attends the mosque frequently, like, how do you, how do you kind of, I don't want to say like encourage, but like, how do you kind of make an effort or is there being any effort being made to, uh, you know, strengthen or maintain those ties? Well, there's a, there's, um, okay. So some things that we're doing to kind of strengthen those ties and reach out to the folks who either were part of the community and have an interest or, you know, just preserving our, our history is we are working a lot to digitalize all of our, our records and digitalize um, all of our archives basically so that we have all of these things that were um, historic documents. And then whenever somebody does come out and, and say they're looking for Ritkevich who is there in, you know, 1927, we can look back and and say like, yes, this person existed, this person lived here. So that's one thing that is an ongoing project. We have some people uh, helping us with that, um, including the Brooklyn Historical Society. They've taken a, an interest in in our story because it is so deeply Brooklyn <laughs> um, that they've really helped us uh, kind of preserve and share out our history. Um, and then having other events that celebrate that history where we are inclusive of folks who do not practice, I think is something that's been um, really important. You know, obviously having the religious aspect as well, but there's a time and a place for that, obviously, but making sure we have this space to um, celebrate with the people who want to celebrate the cultural aspects of it and the history and um, you know, support the mosque um, in ways. That's really interesting because, you know, like what Tariq was touching on um, earlier was, you know, this evolution of the, 
you know, like these European narratives and even American and Canadian narratives of like belonging, um, you know, and I'm sure Tariq, you as a child of the diaspora yourself, yeah. you know, probably also experienced your fair share, mm-hmm. <laughs> unfair share, I should say, of discrimination and mm-hmm. um, I guess stigmatization living in the UK. Uh, yeah. I certainly have experiences in Canada that are similar. Yeah, so and- why do you think, you know, it was important mm-hmm. for you to... Yeah. Um, to bridge those connections, not just between Europe, but also the the rest of the Western world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's really, really important right now in the US. And, you know, sometimes these ha- these things happen. As Muslims, we, we think it's fate, you know, for, for others, it's destiny and so on. I don't think it's any, it's, um, any coincidence that, um, you know, I came across this, this amazing history sitting in Brooklyn. Um, what made it even more fascinating was that these were not your kind of traditional, um, quote unquote, brown Muslims of the East. These were white Muslims from Europe who had helped to found the earliest mosques. And it wasn't the only mosque that um, Muslims from Europe had founded. There's one, um, there was one set up out in North Dakota around the same time in, in, in a place called Ross by Bosnians. I'm sorry, by, by also um, um, Eastern Europeans. And then there was also stuff done by Bosnians in Chicago. So it was really, really fascinating to, 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 to try and, you know, bring these narratives to the surface and 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 make it clear to modern day Americans and and try and put it on the map that this was just another normalized immigrant story that helped to build 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 this great you know nation of immigrants essentially, and um, it's to try and normalize it. And of course, you know, if, if we are going to talk about Muslim heritage, we can't ignore the fact that there was there was a ton of Islamic heritage prior to the immigration into intertwined mm-hmm. with the um, um, with the slave right. trade and 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 all the, the black communities that that were brought in through that um, slave trade and a lot of that unfortunately a lot of the documentation for that history and heritage has often um, is is no longer available and has or actually never existed you know or in actually some cases. never existed and and there is some amazing work taking place right now by people who who have you know who have recently been quite quite um i think quite inspired by some of these little stories coming out here and there to go and look into this stuff and certainly on my second journey when i went back to the us and 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 to try and follow up on what's happening to a lot of the muslim communities under the new um the current presidency um i i i actually took my, took the time to go and explore a little bit of this um black history um through through some interesting people in washington and found that they'd been doing some amazing work all over the country finding these ancient graves of slaves who have clearly muslim names um there there's there's paintings of of muslim slaves that that are um you know in the past have been completely ignored and overlooked and they're also playing a a massive role in trying to normalize it as part of the north american um um cultural and religious heritage and it's the same mm-hmm. obviously in your neck of the woods in 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 canada and and it's really just to sort of kind of try and say hey look guys it's always been a part of this history it's nothing new it's nothing foreign it's nothing scary and um mm-hmm. you know the, the this has always been a part of that that um, beautiful narrative so Alyssa, like you know similar question to you as well because you are so now involved in the community you're mentioning you know the brooklyn uh landmark or history historical society is also taking an interest in the space and um you know what are some of the challenges you're facing in in this um whether it's like the maintaining the archives or uh, interacting with these landmark societies, like 
what are some of the, I guess, some of the gaps that exist in knowledge or uh, what are some of the upcoming challenges that your community is facing to make sure that this history is preserved? I think that it's just a, a huge amount of work. It's a it's a very big lift for a very small number of people who are really passionate and, and really trying, but this is something that is, um, it's a huge amount of work. Um, the board is, only consists of a couple of people and we have these ongoing projects. I feel like there's probably a lot that we've discussed years ago that I said like, oh yeah, I'm really excited to do this. And we still haven't been able to really accomplish those things. Um, but mm. things working with the Landmark Society, working with Brooklyn Historical Society, reaching out to other um, other people who are just in, excited about our history has been a huge help. Um, and really being inspired by other people's willingness to volunteer and spend their time with us and their energy really to to help us do you think that there's uh like how how have you perceived the um the interaction with the larger muslim community in brooklyn and new york like has there been any interaction or uh interest uh from you know like your organizations like ICNA or all these other North American Islamic or organizations that you you know bring several mosques under their umbrella, like has there been any interaction with them or any interest expressed by the larger Muslim community in there, New York? We have not had a lot of interaction. Um, honestly, I think that that's something that would be really wonderful and a great resource to to have these people come, all come together. But that's not something that we've done before, and. Um, I would be happy to to pursue that, but yeah, it's not something that that we've. I think, I think this is a problem yeah. across the board. Sorry, sorry to cut in, but having done tons and tons of work in this area, and recently, of course, worked on the on on a huge project to try and um, bring bring to the surface the the Muslim heritage of Britain. Um, I think a big part of it is that um, Muslims, as as a community, it seems to be a bit of a kind of across the board that we're not really getting it right now. We don't really understand mm-hmm. the importance of this heritage. We don't realize just how um, you know significant it is in in the in the process of of, of developing mm-hmm. Muslim identities in the West. We don't understand that mm-hmm. it's the long game, and and we don't really invest in heritage in the way that we should. Certainly not in the West. Um, I mean, the the only example that I can cite where I've seen um, a, a community really, really embrace it would have to be the the Turkish community. Mm-hmm. In that they they have an actual cultural institute that works out of Turkey called Tika, which essentially functions similar to what we have in the U- UK, known as English Heritage or the or the National Trust, where where it's a concerted effort to try and preserve. Um, and and explore and research the the, the kind of historic um, heritage, and of course that's that's also a part of their national identity. And in the process, they end up looking at mosques and 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 various kind of um, buildings and institutes all over the former Ottoman lands. And it's the closest thing we have. Whereas I find, as a community, it's it's really difficult to convince people to to invest time or fun or any kind of funding into these things and i think that's that's one of the reasons why it can sometimes be quite challenging for small organizations like the one um Alyssa heads up and i think you know i mean speaking from my own experience and and observe observe observations i guess in living in the gta or 
greater Toronto area, I should say, um, is that there's like this proliferation of mosques, you know, there's so many immigrant communities coming in and establishing mosques, which is a very noble effort, I should say, but it kind of, um, it, I feel like it kind of dilutes the possibility of impact uh, because there's mm-hmm. so many of them and that, you know, how many how many mosques is an average person going to donate to? Or is the city councilor going to work with to ensure that this space is actually renovated, let's say, right? Like, mm-hmm. so I think that's some of the challenges that just come up in terms of... Um, and, and sectarianism comes into that as well. You know, people, people will obviously want to want to worship in their own mosques mm-hmm. you know um I, I think this is the um you know if, when you when you start looking into the um american history of of mosques you, we also find that one of the earliest mosques in 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 the us was actually set up by the ahmadiyya community and and you'll find that most um sunnis mm-hmm. in 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 america will absolutely not acknowledge that even as a mosque you know it was set up in in 1920 in in chicago illinois and um so they, they, then you also have that kind of um shall we say division mm-hmm. and and people people want to kind of support their own mosque and don't really want to engage with other mosques and and i think hopefully i mean i, I am seeing signs of of that slowly changing as as we're recognizing that you know we need to support each other, but but I think sometimes that 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 can also be an issue. So I think that that's a good segue. The previous con- uh, conversation that we were having regarding, um, you know, like not understanding what the value is of this heritage. So Alyssa, I want to ask mm-hmm. you, you know, from your own perspective, um, how how do you think the community's um, perception towards their roots has? Um, either maintained or strengthened, like particularly I want to discuss, you know, your trip um, with the community to uh, Eastern Europe. Like how was, like, what were the preconceptions of that trip? You know, what were some of the, what were some of the ideas that you had going into that trip and how did that trip come to be? What was that like? I want to, I want to know more about that. Yeah. Um, So the trip was really organized amazingly by uh, my aunt, who's also on the board, uh, Marin, she's the treasurer. And this was her her undertaking. It, I can't think of a proper word for it because it was a it was a huge um, trip that she had organized. There were sixteen of us uh, going over, and we had always wanted to go to see these towns and villages that we'd always heard stories about. Um, it was mainly like my parents' generation, and their parents were the ones who had come over. And we had no, nobody that was going on the trip had ever been to any of these places before. Um, they were all, yeah. Oh, wow. So we were all um, first generation or second generation American and had lived however many years having heard these stories. For example, my, my dad's mom came over when she was 16 years old and basically never looked back. She, she left, uh, Evia in Belarus when she was 16 years old by herself. And that was it. She just like literally walked out of her village <laughs> and came to America. Wow. And that was the kind of thing that a 16 year old could do at that time. Um, and so these stories, we had, we, we'd gotten these stories and finally there was, it, it kind of came to a head. We're like, we, we should do this. We should do this with, through the mosque, just not just individually, but do it together. Um, 
And we all kind of just threw our, our faith behind uh, my Aunt Marion because we didn't know what to expect going into it. We had done some research. We had made connections with some some tour guides and translators. And we we were all just kind of going on faith like that this was going to be worthwhile. And um, right. it, was, it was astounding. It was so much more than anyone could have possibly imagined. It was really, really um, impactful, I think, on, on every single person. So uh, tell me more about that, because, you know, you're saying that there was no contact with um, the community <laughs> in Europe. So, you know, like, when you finally did meet them, what was their, like, what did you, what do you say in that <laughs> moment? Because it's, it's like, you know, generational divide, but like this also familiarity and like the sense of belonging, like, how do you how did you, what did you feel? Uh, so many things. And it's funny to be in a place where you don't speak a common language, but you look around the room and they're like, hey, there's a bunch of people that look like me in here. <laughs> um, so we, we, I will always remember, uh, I think this is really one of the, one of the highlights for a lot of the folks on the trip where we had come into the the village and our our tour guide slash translator slash facilitator. He, he really did everything with us, uh, Sergey. He would get on a microphone. So we, we all met in the, in the, in the mosque in the, in the common space. We had mm-hmm. a meal because of course, mm-hmm. um, of course, of course. And then, yeah. And then we, um, he, everybody gathered. There were, there were like dozens and dozens of people that greeted us when we arrived there. And they were all holding like photo albums and, and things like that. And it, we all went into this like common room and he stood up on a chair with like a microphone or maybe he was just like hollering. I don't even remember, but he would like scream out a name and then all the people with that last name would like go run up to him. And then he'd be like, okay, this is your mom's aunt. And then he would say that. Oh my, oh yeah. my God. And he would say that in the other language. And it was just like tears and hugging and like showing wow. people each other's pictures. And we did that for like, I don't know, probably like an hour where he would just be like, wow, Gimbitsky. Okay. All the Gimbitskis come over here. Okay. Chaleki. Oh, Chaleki come <laughs> over here. Um, and I think, I think almost everybody of the 16 of us that were on that trip, um, had found somebody like my my dad met a first cousin like a proper first cousin um on that trip um, that's yeah unreal. and he had other relatives um they had passed mm-hmm. um because his mom the one who had left that town when she was 16 had older siblings that stayed mm-hmm. and they they mm-hmm. had you know children that ra- that they raised there so there's it's clearly like a separation of family as well, like you know families mm-hmm. being divided, and that's unreal <laughs> you know like i've I've had a very similar experience when I went and visited my familial home or my maternal familial home uh back in India, like after like somebody from my family after thirty years somebody mm-hmm. went to that village, you know, so that was I can only imagine i think but i i definitely I definitely understand those feelings and like those um sheer magnitude of like conflicting feelings mm-hmm. just coming at you. But um, what was the impact of that trip? You know, in like, how has the community 
has the community mobilized after on that momentum or you know is there more interest in doing frequent trips yes, like these yes i think having seen how successful and how impactful that trip was there were a lot of people who didn't go and were like oh i wish i had gone i wish i had done it um and there was th- some of the people who went you know they're telling their kids they're like you you definitely have to, you have to go on this trip you have to do this this is our family this is amazing um so a lot of people who weren't able to go the first round, having seen how successful it was, uh, are really interested in doing it again. I don't know if my aunt's interested in all that in all that work again, but um, that was definitely uh, there's there's definitely been like a wave of people who are like, yeah, that I should have gone, I should have gone, um, and also other people who are who had gone on the trip who maybe weren't as involved before, but were really truly mm-hmm. had a, a renewed sense of like belonging and a renewed sense of um motivation because a lot of a number of the people who were on the trip are now retired and they're like there's they're they have the time to dive into history and dive into um their personal history as it relates to the community and have been able to share around with other folks in the community like oh i found these great um video reel from the the mosque picnic in 1954 you know wow um yeah, or, you know, share around old photographs. So it's definitely been um, reconnecting, uh, renewed interest and in reconnecting with the community. So that's actually a really good point. And Tarek, I want to throw this question to you because, you know, as somebody who is in the travel and tourism industry, you know, you're, you've contributed to so many art uh, publications. Do you see that this is a, what do you make of this wave of, you know, roots tourism? Like, you know, kind of reconnecting with your heritage and, um, you know, like your your familiar backgrounds, mm. like how do you see that trend in in tourism generally? Well, I mean, in in tourism generally, you see it. Um, it's I think it's always been there. Um, I I I think what's also happened with the the interconnected nature of the world. To, I'm I'm old enough to remember a world before the internet. So <laughs> to to kind of see a world where the internet has brought us all so much closer, you see things like ancestry.co.uk where you can research people's mm-hmm. ancestry is just like ridiculously subscribed you see uh, programs coming out constantly uh, certainly in the UK um what well, one springs to mind mm. who do you think you are where where people go on uh, celebrities go on this kind of journey to to try and find their own roots there has been so i think the tools with which we might have historically tried to trace our roots, our ancestry, our sense of belonging is something that firstly has become so much more sophisticated and, 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 and records are so much more accessible, you know, with, with the digitization of everything nowadays. Um, but also, I guess, as all three of us are in some way, shape or form Muslims of the West, I think given what's go- you know, they're, they're, we, we simply can't in- ignore global politics and, and given what's going on, and the kind of populist um, right-wing um, wave of populist kind of um, notions that are spreading. I think a lot of Muslims are increasingly, certainly in the West, increasingly feeling like they they want to better understand their roots. And, and I've noticed over here, um, you know, there has been a real spike 
in in the interest of histories such as um, what's going what 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 went down in Spain for you know over seven hundred years and and the role Muslims played there in in the kind of European Renaissance and the and and the way in which we see Europe today how much of it has, was actually um, you know created and constructed with the help of Muslims back then and and then you have programs um, that are being created such as um, the, the the very I'm, I'm sure some you, you're probably aware of the the very kind of popular Erterol program which looks into the history of yep. of the the father uh, so shall we say imagined history of of the father of the the founder of the Ottoman Empire and this is this has given rise to to a renewed interest in Ottoman history and people are realizing Ottoman history comes all the way over to 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 the Balkans and and uh, right up on uh, you know on, onto the doorstep of Western Europe and even mm-hmm. even beyond that you know um, we, we we in the work that I did over here in the UK with with some of the heritage of of the UK we realized that one of our earliest converts he was bestowed with a title as um, Sheikh al Islam of Britain by right. the Ottoman caliphs. So, so you know, history comes all the way out here, and this was in the Victorian era. Um, and so, this renewed interest, I think, is as much about um, people um, searching for belonging, searching for an understanding of their own identity, um, and and it's it's become more and more important for a lot of Muslims, I think, in the West, who who although they may be the sons and daughters of of migrants, they certainly see themselves as British. French, case Canadian, American. right? So it's also to dispel a narrative of antagonization. Yeah, that yes, yes. I think it's 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 partly it's partly a response to that, and but also it's it's maybe a, a, a sense of them saying, well, w- what does it mean for me as a Muslim to to be British? You know, is is there is there something within right. mm-hmm. um, the, the the British heritage that that is also a part of mine or something that I can call mine and something that helps me belong and. And, and finding those things is very exciting. And, and also, like I say, as, as you've pointed out, it is, it is a response to, to a lot of this antagonism because it allows people to talk about um, Mus- um, Muslims and Islam in these various Western nations in a much more mm-hmm. normalized way. So, uh, Alyssa, in terms of, you know, when you hear Tariq speaking about this, you know, like your own journey, how do you think your perceptions towards your own heritage have kind of withstood the test of time, especially in terms of, you know, a post 9-11 world where, um, you know, the attitude towards Muslims was very antagonistic? Uh, it's a big question. <laughs> um, I would say, honestly, that that was a really integral part of my perception of what it is to be Muslim. Um, I was in 11th grade and living on Long Island uh, during 9-11. And I had always had like a, a vague high schoolers disinterest in the religion they were raised in, you know, like, okay, yes, this is, the, you know, whatever. This is the thing. That I know, you know? I'm familiar. Um, <laughs> For sure. But, you know, and I had never, you know, even having been in, uh, involved in the mosque my whole life and my grandparents, um, I never really, I never went to religious classes. I, I didn't really honestly know that much. Um, and then that was a very mm. strong time in my life where it was like, oh, these people identify as a thing that I identify as, and that's messed up. And I don't want to do that. 
Um, so that actually right. inspired me to look into really more deeply, like what does this mean to call myself a Muslim? Um, because mm. I'm like, how can I possibly have anything in common with these people? So I think honestly, that was the mm. first time that I even made an active effort um, on part of like the religious, the religious part of my life. It's almost kind of like um, a, a internalizing uh, an identity that, you know, previously was not such a huge part of your identity or like many different identities that you incorporated. Like it wasn't the dominant one, let's say. No, no. Right. Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> um, yeah. Because honestly, like, you know, you're, you're right. Like as a, you know, as somebody who, who also grew up in, in North America, you know, it's such a, like, it's such a myriad, a myriad mm-hmm. is that the right word? Yeah, of, of different identities that kind of, you know, incorporate who you are as a being, like, and then to suddenly be forced to confront one, which is coming from a place of mm-hmm. antagonism by others. Like, it's so challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in terms of your, like, you know, the work that the mosque is trying to achieve now, do you think that there is an element of, um, of education and awareness building uh, to to the broader um, Brooklyn community and the New York community that like th- this isn't just Islamic heritage this is mm-hmm. also cultural heritage. Yeah, I, I like to think that we are, and I, I am making an effort to increase that because for so long our mosque's identity was one of like isolation, like keep your head down and don't make a fuss and we'll just like keep humming along. And that was really like that, that immigrant mentality of like quick blend in and, you know, no one will, no one will pick on us. And I think that that has been to our detriment in the past couple of decades because we haven't been reaching out. We haven't been um, working with other communities. We haven't been really even interacting with the community directly outside our door. Um, Mm. So I think that that has been to our detriment for a long time. And this is something that we've been making an effort to do more and more when, you know, having celebrations at the mosque, um, inviting the whole neighborhood to our iftar dinner once a year uh, and, Mm. and really doing a little bit of education on what we do, what it is and our history uh, for the, at least the, a couple of block radius that's where we're starting <laughs> you know right. just a couple of blocks outside our doors is, is that's the first step um and i there's been a shift for sure um in the board where we're moving from like don't let anybody know we're here to we need to open the doors wider mm-hmm. because we are good people and the more exposure we have to the outside world more people will be like, oh, yeah, I know Alyssa. She's cool. Oh, also, she's Muslim. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the more... Normalize. Yeah, exactly. yeah Normalize as a part of, you know, this is the... I, I remember meeting you and your wonderful Aunt Marion. And, of course, I also was lucky enough to meet your parents. And I was like, if I met these guys on the streets, they're just, they're just Brooklyn people. <laughs> they're just... And that's what people need to appreciate. Even though I'd done all this work meeting other Muslims who, who had kind of flown in the face of the stereotype... I was still taken aback when I met you guys. And, and that's what I think that's a, that's a side of, shall we say Muslim America that Americans don't know enough about mm-hmm. and, and, and need to see more of. And I think you, you have such a important role and I'm so glad to hear that, 
you know, as a, as a mosque and a community, you're starting to slowly embrace that. And, and I hope, you know, soon that, you know, you can get the kind of financial backing as well that you need to, to, to sort of turn it into the heritage center that I think you've spoken about that you always wanted to turn it into. Yeah. Definitely. And like, you know, even my own experience coming to find you, Alyssa, you know, I, I was so fortunate that you opened up the doors to the mosque last year for me. Like I literally discovered the mosque the day of my flight at the airport. And I think I emailed you out of a whim thinking like, oh my God, please let this email still be active. And like, you know, she'll respond. And I was, I think I was there for, I was in New York only for three days because it was our Thanksgiving long weekend. And mm -hmm. I think I managed to come into the space on the very last day before I flew back out. So, you know, even just kind of staying on top of like requests and things like that, it has, I, I think it definitely has so much more potential to, you know, like you said, open up the doors further to just two or three blocks down the road mm -hmm. from you. So guys, I think, you know, with that note, I think this is a good conclusion mm. that we can reach. <laughs> I really want to thank you both for taking the time to uh, chat with us and, you know, give our listeners a perspective of uh, this history, which is so important. And, uh, woven so deeply into the fabric of New York City. Um, and also just the implications that, that this has on the broader diaspora and, you know, how we as different parts of the community as Muslims, but also as Tathars and Pakistanis and Indians and Bangladeshis and whoever um, mm. interact with, you know, Western spaces and cultivate our own Islamic spaces. Mm. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for sharing your platform. Thank you for listening. All of the links mentioned can be found in our show notes. We're on Twitter as S Footsteps and everywhere else on social media as Sacred Footsteps.